You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. If there's one thing that made Dick Cheney's parents happy, it's that he had the same birthday as their favorite president, Franklin Roosevelt. When he was three, growing up in the small town of Sumner, Nebraska, his father was drafted right towards the tail end of World War II and joined the Navy. His mother had a case of appendicitis and couldn't take care of he and his brother, so he lived with his grandmother. I was convinced that when he was at home, he was my dad, and when he went back to the Navy, they put him through some kind of process, and they turned him into one of those deals that I saw on his shoulder. That's right. Cheney had thought that his father had turned into a bird and would fly away during that time. Fortunately, right at this time, Japan surrendered. The family was reunited. His mom was headed his way anyway. Lincoln, Nebraska was where the family settled. But it had a severe post-war housing shortage. We were lucky, he says, to have friends to offer their unfinished basement to us. His mother cooked on a hot plate. And his family shared a bathroom with the family upstairs. Till finally they found a five-room tract house in the suburb of College View, Nebraska, where the family would drive around in their 37 Buick. Cheney was actually born in Nebraska. We, we think about him being a, a Wyomingite. That's Tim Pearson. He's the author of Second Fiddle, The Strange, Sick, Silly, Sad, and Soused Men, We Elected Vice President. And he's been a frequent guest on my Vice Presidents of the United States podcast. As a student, teacher said that he spoke self-consciously, but sat correctly and used his handkerchief. He was top-notch in English, but not so much in art and music. He liked bike riding, played Little League in the summer, and Pop Warner football in the winter. And he liked fishing. I was probably seven or eight when my dad started taking me to some of the farm ponds and slow-moving creeks outside of Lincoln. We fished for bullhead and carp with bamboo poles, using worms for bait. He listened to the radio, and he read books about Kit Carson and George Washington. When he was in his early teens, he moved to Wyoming. His dad was, he was a conservationist. He was a soil tester for the federal government. And, you know, Wyoming is a lot of soil. So, you know, good place to be, really. So, you know, his formative years were, he was, he was, he was rough and tumble. He played sports, he, uh, he hunted, he camped. 
His father had supported Adelaide Stevenson, but when Eisenhower became president, he did work for him in the Soil Conservation Service, and given a choice of assignments, the family moved to Casper, Wyoming, the so-called oil capital of the Rockies. To a casual observer, the landscape might have seemed barren and boring, but my brother and I went out there for hours. We knew its different grasses, the sagebrush, the scrub pine, and all the animals that lived there, antelope, deer, jackrabbits, cottontails, the occasional rattlesnake. We took our 22s along and usually returned with a couple of rabbits, which mom would fry up for her lunch boxes for the next day. The Casper that he was living in was in the heart of the Old West. The town was right where the Oregon Trail traced its beginnings to a ferry that the Mormons established to take pioneers across the Platte River. It was a small town. The next city of any size to the south of Casper was 120 miles away. You had to go west 100 miles before encountering anything larger than a gas station. Nonetheless, the high school that Cheney went to was rural but fairly large. Natrona County High School drew from all over central Wyoming. So there were 500 kids in freshman class. And Cheney stood out, played football and baseball. He didn't play basketball because, as his coach told him, he couldn't shoot and he couldn't jump. He was part of a football team that tied for the state championship. Later, he'd reunite with his teammates as vice president. While in high school, Cheney had a job delivering papers, working as a janitor at a Ben Franklin five and dime store, also worked in a candy store. And it's in high school where he met Lynn Vincent, now Lynn Cheney. Became an item, and you know, we we think about when when we picture Dick Cheney, we think about him in his later years. You know, we got the the elbows on the table and the, and the hands under the chin, and his lips are, are clamped together real hard. He's got these littlest eyes and these kind of, this kind of balding tortoise head. But at the time, he was considered kind of a catch, so they became kind of a kind of a power couple there. Um, it was a 1950s lifestyle right out of the books. He was class president. She was homecoming queen and baton twirler. He'd go to the movies. He'd hang out at the canteen kind of a diner and listen to the Everly Brothers and Elvis Presley. In good time, he drew some interest from a gentleman named Thomas Strook. Uh, Mr. Strook was a Yale grad who was a millionaire. As a matter of fact, he was in the oil business. Um, and he was also a regional recruiter for Yale. And Strook thought he saw something of interest in, in young Cheney, or Cheney, actually, as, as they pronounced it back then. It was Cheney in later years, but Cheney at the time. And so he procured a full-ride scholarship to Dick Cheney to Yale. Far from being a big fish in a small pond as he was in Casper, he now had to learn to play squash and sit in huge dining halls full of students. And it took bucks to make a long-distance call. He only got a C. Cheney had very little interest in attending class, um, even less interest in, in studying on his own, and there wasn't much to do in New Haven. So, so he and his buddies, boy, they found their way to the you know, the, the bar and, and, and the pranks and, the, and, and he spent very little time in anything school related. This was great fun until the end of the year when Cheney got a letter from the school informing him that his grades were awful. 
Yale was no longer interested in providing him with a free education and pulled his scholarship. They weren't exactly telling him to beat it, but they weren't asking him back either. If he did want to continue, it would be on his own dime. So they pulled his scholarship. They didn't exactly tell him to go away, but they didn't really urge him to come back either. Um, And he was thinking about quitting. He really was. But Lynn talked him down. He, she told him, you know, stop sniveling, get some loans, get back to school. So he did. He did. But the Bacchanalian lures were always nearby and difficult to resist. But school held even less interest for him at that point than it did before. And there was, you know, a lot of beer to cloth and various things to do. Um, and so by and by, he got another letter. And the Yale uh, administration said, you know, your grades are even worse than they were before. And we're really not interested in, in having you around any longer. And they encouraged him to take his talents elsewhere. So here it is, 1961, and Cheney has flunked out of Yale. And so he found himself back in Wyoming, and he's laying power lines to and fro across the state. Hard work. It was a good wage, three ten an hour, lots of overtime. But he saw many fantastic accidents with this experiment with rural electricity. He saw times when the electricity blew up rocks and fried a pickup truck. He saw man-created lightning balls. He never had an accident himself. He did build up a a bit of a bankroll. And Lynn, God bless her, was there to say, look, um, give it another shot. You know, apply back at Yale, see if they'll let you in. He did. They did. He's back at Yale. And as you might expect, it turned out just like it did before. School, uh, according to Cheney in in a later admittance, he said that it held no appeal for me. And I can assure you that Yale found Cheney even less appealing. So he got another letter saying, pack your things, be on your way. And he had flunked out again. So he flunked out of Yale twice. So he's back laying power lines. He drove a 49 Chevy around with his large suitcase working on jobs. His friends were in college. He missed his friends. But he didn't have a care now. We'd hang out at one of the local bars, ideally a place that would cash our check or carry a tab until first payday. We consumed vast quantities of beer. If something stronger was called for, we'd drink shots of bourbon with beer chasers. A combo that explains how I managed to get arrested twice within a year, for driving under the influence. First time was in Cheyenne, and I brushed it off. But the second time, in 1963, was in Rock Springs, Wyoming, and he slept off that night, slept off his hangover in a Rock Spring jail. As he did it, it wasn't lost on him that at this moment, 63, his friends, and Lynn were graduating from college, and here he was, sleeping in jail. He's thrown in the slam. Things are going downhill. And so, if you can picture this guy, he's slumped out of college twice. He's, he's laying power lines. He's in the slam. He's got drunk driving arrests on his record. I mean, he seems destined for a life of, of, of wobbly insecurity, uh, obscurity on the high plains, and probably would have. It had taken a lot to drive the message home, but I realized the morning I woke up that if I didn't fundamentally change, it was going to come to a bad end. It goes up to a mountain, and there, looking at the mountain pass and the river and the trees that Wyoming can offer, 
he makes a decision. He's going to act. He's going to go back to college. He's going to make something of myself. He tells his roommate, who was one of his co-workers that he had been drinking in that night, that he got arrested. I'm going to make something of myself. The friend responded to him, Who do you think you are? I never talked to him again, Cheney said. He goes to U. Wyoming, and at night he gets a job reading to a retired Air Force colonel who had lost his sight. He was in the crowd when John F. Kennedy comes to the University of Wyoming. Strangely enough, this future Republican vice president and a person that today we might think of as an ultimate, you know, Republican, was inspired by JFK. I was elevated and grateful for the possibilities he described. It would be a few months, sadly, before his assassination. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Lynn firmly told him, in a kind but firm manner, that she had no intention of marrying somebody who was going along this path, and he absolutely needed to get back to college. Well, Yale was not going to be an option, so he ended up um, going to and graduating from the University of Wyoming, and this, this really changed things for him. Cheney first gets into politics after he's married and after he buys a house in 64 and does an internship with the Wyoming State Legislature, funded by the state's GOP. He had to drive 50 miles to Cheyenne. It was a 40-day session. 40 days of the year. He wrote a report on his internship that won an award. $100 doesn't seem like much now, but then for Cheney, it's two months' rent. And you know, his, his politics are interesting as well, Bruce, because his family was strongly Democratic. His, um, his father had FDR as a hero. Uh, both both his parents were Democratic. Lynn Cheney's uh, family was Democratic as well, and he really didn't have a lot of 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 spoken preferences one way or another until really in in '65 he had gotten uh, an internship to the Wyoming State Legislature. There were two of them. He got one of them. So the first intern. Um, kind of got his choice, and and he decided to intern in the House, which was Democratic-controlled at that point. Well, that left the other intern, Cheney, interning in the Wyoming Senate, which was Republican-controlled. And really, that was kind of the start in, in his new Republican leanings. Because of this internship and that award and connections that he made in the Wyoming legislature, the Cheneys move to Washington, and he goes to the University of Washington. Here, he's encountering, for the first time, protesters. Lynn was blocked to class by protesters dressed as mimes, protesting the Vietnam War. I strongly disagreed with the protesters. 
He was offered to manage a campaign. He turned it down, but he did take an offer of a fellowship from a Democratic senator, Joe Tidings. Cheney moves to D.C. He teased his Democratic parents. Sure will be sorry to see Nixon win the election. He gets to see Lyndon Johnson's desk, but not Lyndon Johnson himself. Still found it impressive. Um, it it, it kind of continued that way when he'd gotten a fellowship to to work for a year on Capitol Hill in 1968. And he heard a speech that, that kind of changed his life. And it was a speech by an Illinois Republican named Donald Rumsfeld. And Cheney was just blown away by his speech. He thought this was fantastic. Former congressman, now in the Nixon administration, when he's asked to brush up his prep for a Senate committee on Nixon's appointment of him to the Office of Economic Opportunity. He applied to Rumsfeld's office to work. Um, and uh, apparently, according to all accounts, that, that the interview did not go well. Rumsfeld was not impressed with him, tossed him out of his office. And that may have been it. Cheney, a future Secretary of Defense, avoids service in the Vietnam War through a series of student deferments. Although he was reclassified in mid-1964 into the top category, it was probably close to being drafted when Lynn gave birth to the couple's first child, Elizabeth, in 1966. As a father, Cheney received an additional deferment that lasted until he reached the age of 26 and passed out of the draft pool. When quizzed later in life about his deferments, Cheney maintained that he would have served if called up. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, Rumsfeld was appointed to head the, the Office of Economic Opportunity. And out of the blue, Cheney sent Rumsfeld a, a letter suggesting, I'll give him some suggestions on how to handle his confirmation hearings. I mean, it's some chutzpah to do that, certainly. But it got, it got uh, Rumsfeld's attention. And, uh, and, and so when, when Rumsfeld became an ambassador to NATO, um, he asked Cheney to join him. And eventually, when Nixon resigned and, and Ford uh, made Rumsfeld his chief of staff, Rumsfeld asked Cheney to join him as his deputy. And boy, the rest is history. He interrupted his Ph.D. program, his dissertation on various models of roll call voting, 
And Cheney and Lynn, by the way, and this is probably not well known, write about politics and have many books published, particularly Lynn, but also Dick, um, actually have a very good book on the House, in which if you had no political affiliation whatsoever and just wanted to read a book about the workings of the House, and particularly one of the themes of that book is how difficult it is for speakers of the House to become president. Really, none since Polk, right? Um People forget, or maybe they don't know, that that she earned a doctorate in British literature at Wisconsin. Very well read. They were in in the early their early days in Washington. They were definitely considered an intellectual power couple in the D.C. area. And uh, moves for this uh, fellowship in D.C. It's one year. It's sponsored by the American Political Science Association. During his time in D.C., Cheney sees Fred Hampton at an SDS rally and liked him as a speaker, but didn't like what he heard. He also didn't like when he hears that a van loaded with explosives blows up the Army Mathematics Research Center in Madison. This is where, when he was going to the University of Wisconsin, he used to go. There's a graduate student there at the time of the explosion with a wife and three young children. It's because it's the middle of the night. The people doing the bombing didn't think anyone would be there. But Cheney himself used to do the same thing, to go there after hours when no one was there. That could have been him, the thoughts in his mind. The interesting story that comes out of Dick Cheney's own memoir is that uh, he gets the attention of Don Rumsfeld, who's heading up the Office of Economic Opportunity, and it's an odd person who's tasked by Rumsfeld to look at candidates to help out. And it's uh, one of so one of the people that either directly hires Cheney, which just would have been a really strange thing, or at least has a role in putting him on the shortlist for Rumsfeld, is Bill Bradley, then a former Princeton scholar, New York Nick, and then also a senator from New Jersey. Here's how the New Yorker describes um, Cheney's early career in D.C. The Office of Economic Opportunity, from a Republican point of view, was a hardship post. Nixon hated the agency, which had become the point of interaction between the federal government and the 60s, the agency most likely to attract demonstrations and occupations. Rumsfeld was there to calm things down and particularly put an end to political protesting on the government's nickels by recipients of OEO grants. Working at the OEO, however was not bad for one's career in the party, even if Nixon didn't like the agency. It was a way of being involved in one of the great controversies of the day. And America's most famous promising young person at that moment, Bill Bradley, worked there. For Republicans, it offered the chance to demonstrate the ability to perform a distasteful assignment. Four future cabinet officers, Don Rumsfeld, Dick Cheney, Frank Carlucci, and Christine Todd Whitman, had served on OEO staff at different times. Rumsfeld was swaggering and super ambitious, an ex-fighter pilot who would greet subordinates visiting his office with lines like, you've got 30 seconds, and would relentlessly needle the people working for him. Speak up, Dick. Don't talk into your sleeve, he'd say to the very green Cheney when he'd go into his Western mumble in staff meetings. Cheney was just as intense as Rumsfeld, though, though more concealed, the process guy who hardly ever said anything and had as far as the people working for him could tell, no opinions of his own. The word bland came up in descriptions of him. He was a political scientist. He knew how government worked. He smoked heavily, 
drove an ancient Volkswagen Beetle and lived in a small suburban townhouse with his wife and family. But as Rumsfeld keeps getting promoted, he keeps bringing Cheney along with him. Number two man. Next assignment's cost of living council. The wage price control operation Nixon had put into place. From the Rumsfeld-Cheney point of view, this was the OEO story all over again. Chance to carry out the impossible task without creating problems for the administration. And it helped both of these very young fellows to get advanced. Rumsfeld was rewarded with the United States ambassadorship to NATO. Cheney then goes outside government, working for a firm that provided strategic advice to businesses. When Nixon resigns, Gerald Ford asks Don Rumfeld to come back and organize his White House. Cheney acts as Don Rumfeld's secretary. As there's more involvement in the White House, even during the Nixon term, Cheney's drunk driving arrest is discovered. You know, it's one thing just working for the OEO, but as they get more involved in working with the president, that comes up in a background check. Rumsfeld calls Cheney into the office and says, did you reveal everything when it was asked of you? Yes. And that's all he had to hear. Rumsfeld had been a congressman who, along with others, spearheaded an insurgent group of House Republicans that dumped the then minority leader, GOP House member Charles Halleck, and made Gerald Ford of Michigan minority leader. A young buck at that time. He trusted Rummy. That's what Ford called him. And Rummy brings in Cheney. I didn't want to do it, Rumsfeld said later. I'd been in the White House, had no desire to go back. I liked being at NATO. Rumsfeld tells the president he finds someone else to do it. No, Ford says. I need you. The country needs you. And there's not much you can do in American politics when that happens, at least generally. President calls. Rumsfeld does ask for changes. You can't just manage things from your swivel chair in the Oval Office. You can't do this spokes of the wheel. Got to give it to us, and I'm going to bring in Dick Cheney. Cheney gets the nod, and at 35, becomes White House Deputy Chief of Staff. Rumsfeld replaces Al Haig, who is too associated with the Nixon administration and causing friction with Ford's people. Ford liked his two assistants. Later in a book that would only be revealed at Ford's death, he said, uh, I would say Don is a little more sensitive to criticism. Cheney laughs about it. He may resent it, but he doesn't show it. Rumsfeld and Cheney find the White House in chaos. Decisions were too impromptu. The president would be in an NSC meeting on Soviet arms control, and 50 legionnaires would come in from Grand Rapids to, for their appointment with him. He and Rumsfeld took control of the president's schedule, the flow of documents, the personnel. Their goal? Save the president's time. Spare him from problems that don't require his attention. Cheney and Rumsfeld work long hours, pushing Ford's legislation and plans, urging the president to impose what the president could do using his powers. For instance, if he can't get his energy bill passed, put an export tax on oil. You can do that. Make Congress feel the pain and get an energy plan going to increase domestic energy production. Cheney was clear to Ford in his early guidance. The president needed to take command. We can't just submit a list of proposals to Congress and ask them to lead. Gerald Ford said of him, Dick was young and, as I recall, a brownish kind of scraggly-haired guy. He was a, a little old shoeish, a soft voice, confidential tone. He could be very objective. He would disassociate his own feelings. He had a keen mind to analyze a political situation or a problem, as well as anybody I knew. He was a softer cell person than Rumsfeld was. Don could be abrupt, ruffle feathers from time to time. Dick tried to avoid confrontation, to persuade. 
He was an inside man, all business. There was a lot of people who were saying Rumsfeld wanted to be Ford's running mate in 1976 if he dumped Rockefeller. And he did engage in some undermining of the vice president. He also cleverly arranged for George Bush to succeed Dick Colby as head of the CIA so that George Bush would have to remain separate from politics and couldn't be considered for that 76 nomination. In the end, that went to Bob Dole. Cheney had a different reputation. He wasn't looking at that time anyway for a vice presidential spot. The Secret Service codename for him was Backseat. Both were pragmatic problem solvers, Ford said. Both worked 18-hour days and were absolutely loyal to me. One person who didn't like him very much was Bob Hartman, who had been Ford's key speechwriter. Bob Hartman is the guy who's going to say, write the words, our long national nightmare is over. And he's going to resign temporarily when Ford pardons Nixon. Cheney demotes Bob Hartman and removes him from being an aide and just gives him the job of chief White House speechwriter. But even there, he makes him irrelevant, hires David Gergen to do Hartman's job. In Hartman's memoir, he would say this, Cheney was a presentable young man who could easily be lost in a gaggle of J.C. executives. His most distinguishing features were snake-cold eyes, like a Cheyenne gambler's. He was tough, tireless, book smart, with a touch of sarcasm, occasionally overcoming studied subordination. We also see in Cheney's work with Ford how he viewed the role of Congress and the role of the presidency that would shape his later vice presidency. Cheney's files from his old days as Gerald Ford's chief of staff show that day upon day the Ford White House was confronting the church committee. This was Frank Church, senator from Idaho's investigation into the intelligence committees. This is during the 70s. And Congress, after Watergate, is out for blood. They want to know what's going on. Hearing about the use of FBI, illegal break-ins, you know, the conduct of intelligence, the FBI, law enforcement during the 60s is now on trial in the 70s in the form of the church committee. Investigations of intelligence abuses and a determination to institute checks and balances on the imperial presidency. It was outrageous from Cheney's vantage points. He'll talk about it later, even as vice president, especially after 9-11, blaming the lack of preparation in a couple statements on this uh, church committee removing too many powers from the presidency. There's a change that's come over America. Cheney's involved in the election of 1976, tries to help Ford win that election. Today, America enjoys the most precious gift of all. We are at peace. We're at peace with the world and at peace with ourselves. America is smiling again. And a great many people believe that the leadership of this steady, dependable man can keep America happy and secure. We know we can depend on him to work to keep us strong at home. We know we can depend on him to work to ease tensions among the other nations of the world. We know we can depend on him to make peace his highest priority. 
peace with freedom. Is there anything more important than that? Runs against Jimmy Carter, who came out of nowhere to win the Democratic primaries. We could just have a government, as I've said a thousand times, as good as our people are. That's all we can hope for, and that's all we can expect, and that's enough. Didn't have a, a congressional record to attack. And after Watergate seemed very honest and very uh, frank and a new voice, he was also from the South, which for a Democrat was a, a region they were having problems with. He has a 30-point lead going into the election of 1976. Cheney is going to work with others to help Ford gr- get some of that territory back and uh, to close that gap more. And by election day, it's close. But during a debate, Gerald Ford says, there's no Soviet domination of Eastern Europe. It was a dumb moment. It was a silly mistake to make. From the accounts, it appears that Ford just didn't either understand the question or was trying to say there's no Soviet dominion of Eastern Europe, or just trying to say the people of Eastern Europe don't feel dominated, or I don't accept their domination. The U.S. shouldn't accept the domination. But in the context of that debate, when you watch that clip, it didn't make any sense in that way. It really appears like Ford doesn't think that the Soviets were in control of nations like Bulgaria and Czechoslovakia and Poland. Jimmy Carter is immediately going to leap on that during the debate and then in the days after the debate. And there's going to be some frustrated Polish Americans, Czech Americans who see Ford as just not caring about their struggle. A state where that's going to be important. It's going to be important in a lot of states, but Ohio is a key state there. And Carter's campaign knows and jumps on it. It goes on for days, though, and Ford never issues an apology or changes his statement. Cheney keeps arguing with Ford, you've got to say something, you've got to make this change. He's kicked out of the cabin. In desperation, he sends his not-so-friendly fellow campaigner, Bob Hartman, in. Hartman's more friendly with Ford on this, and Ford allows him into the cabin, but just says, I'm not going to change it. Cheney had a stubborn stubborn streak. Um, Ford had a stubborn streak. Wouldn't change his statement. No dice. Here's what Cheney's daughter said about the 1976 election. On election night, my parents watched the returns at the White House, leaving us with a babysitter, an older woman who chain-smoked and had strong opinions. Ford was 30 points down in that election, but fought back. It wasn't clear that night who would win. took all night for the results to be confirmed, but the next morning it was clear it was over. And I believe that I can make the kind of leadership in the White House, they can tap the greatness that's in all of you. President Ford, who had lost his voice in the last days of the campaign, asked my dad to help him. And to help with the concession call to Jimmy Carter. Ford was only able to squeeze out a few words on that call. Okay. He turned the call over to my dad. Dick Cheney now reads a prepared statement congratulating Jimmy Carter on his victory. It's the only time, his daughter would say, that dad has ever had to concede an election. After 76, Cheney, who in some Republican circles, anyone associated with that Ford campaign or the Ford presidency is being blamed for the election, may have been able to eke out some Washington Post. But he says, 
This town's too full of ghosts from the previous administration. I'm not eager to become one. He ran for Congress, won, and became Wyoming's only congressman for a decade. Conservative voice. And then he'd be tapped to join an administration again. I wanted to talk a little bit about the book. So the book is Second Fiddle, The Strange, Sick, Silly, Sad, and Soused Men, We Elected Vice President. The author is Tim Pearson. Um, Check it out on Amazon or wherever you get books from. Um, Talk a little bit about the the book. Um, Why did you you, uh, think about the uh, number twos as a subject of a book? I was trying to find a, a slant in history, maybe that, that is a little more unknown, a path that, that is less trod. And, uh, and you know, I, I started looking at the executive branch, and there are many, many, many books on, on presidents, and we know a lot about presidents. And I started looking at some of their VPs, and I realized, I don't, even, I don't know most of these people. And not only do I not know much of their history, I don't even know their names. And so I started researching them a little bit, and, and, and I found that there are 32 still 32 now with, with Biden's ascendancy to the presidency, 32 VPs that have never taken the next step. They've never become president. And the, the list is, <laughs> these, these are individuals who in, in, in many ways are incompetent, crooked, drunk, weird. I mean, the title kind of says it all. And there, there's so many backstories of, of these individuals. It, it, it's fascinating to, to hear about you know, George Clinton and Daniel Tompkins and, and Richard Johnson, Dan Quayle. There's a lot of great stories in there that, that kind of frame our history through the eyes and through the prism of some of these really odd individuals. We want to thank Tim Pearson for coming on, and thanks for listening to My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. Uh, remember the Patreon, patreon.com slash M-H-C-B-U-Y-P. And thanks for listening. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.